One can imagine the excitement and the sigh of relief that was breathed by those Christians in Asia Minor when John wrote this short five-chapter book to them after they had been harassed by false teachers who basically came among their ranks and said that they were not as saved as they had previously been told that they were. This group, the Gnostics, or we could just refer to them as the spiritual know-it-alls, came alongside and told these Christians that if they really wanted to be sure that they were saved, they'd have to go along with some of their foreign doctrines and other things that they had added in alongside the apostles' teaching. And so John, with inspired precision and pastoral care, writes the five chapter book that you and I know as the book of first John to address these issues and others and to remind these Christians that they can know that they stand on solid ground and that they're in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. John writes to encourage them in their faith and to push them into further faithfulness and not into apostasy as a result of the things that they have been taught. These Christians were struggling to hold fast to the truth, and John wants them to know that they can know where they stand with God because they're in a right relationship with him based on his words. You know, maybe we're in a situation where we don't parallel their circumstances exactly, and they aren't Gnostics coming in telling us things that are foreign to the New Testament, and yet we struggle, and we need John's message. We need to know where we stand with God because sometimes we struggle to know whether or not we truly are in a right relationship with him. Maybe you've had doubts on occasion about whether or not you're really saved and whether or not God's going to save you in the end. And for that reason and many others, we need to read and study the book that we know is First John. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it to First John, chapter one. Tonight in our prayer service, we've talked about various things that are on our hearts and minds and things that matter to us. And all of these things are fueled by the reality that we pray to a God that we believe hears us because we're in a right relationship with him through his son. You know, throughout this book, John doesn't really shy away from addressing the false teachers, but he does spend most of his time speaking directly to the Christians and trying to build up their faith, build up our faith by extension and say, never mind what those individuals are teaching you. Hold fast to the truths that you've received from us. And so tonight, briefly, what we want to do is just look at five things that John says in the book of first John, five texts that teach us that though we are not perfect, we can be saved and we can be sure. And before you write off this lesson and say, you know what, I'm pretty good in this department. I don't really struggle with my salvation. And maybe this lesson is for somebody else. Ask yourself a few questions. Do you ever think to yourself or maybe feel internally this way? You know what? I would feel a lot more secure in my salvation if I could just do a few more good works. If I could just be involved in a few more things, then and only then I could be sure that God was approved of me and that God was satisfied with who I am. Do you ever think to yourself that though I've obeyed the gospel and I'm walking with Christ to the best of my ability to live a faithful Christian life, that there still is this possibility that on the day of judgment, I could be shocked with the words depart from me. You that practice lawlessness for I never knew you. I can just never really be 100 percent sure. Do you ever watch somebody else get baptized? And if you're honest, there's just a twinge of envy. Because as you see them rise from the waters of baptism, you look back to the time when you were baptized so long ago and you long to be that justified, that forgiven, that at peace. Or do you say to yourself, you know what, I've read the New Testament and I get forgiveness. I know exactly what the Bible says about that. And I know I can be forgiven and I accept that. But I mean, really, how far does that go? How much does he forgive? I was baptized a long time ago and I've sinned a pretty good deal in between my baptism and that time. How far does that go? How much forgiveness is there? And can we really be sure that we're not wearing out our welcome before God for all of those reasons and more? We need the message that John gives us in first John. And so let's begin together tonight. Number one, 
John says that you and I can be saved and sure because we're continually cleansed. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the first thing John says is he and the other apostles saw the real Jesus. He says, we saw him, we looked upon him, and our hands have handled him, the word of this life. 1 John 1 and verse 3, he says, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And as long as we walk in the light, we have fellowship with him. Notice verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all our sins. The first reason why we can be saved and sure about our salvation salvation is because as long as we walk in the light as he is in the light, we enjoy a continual cleansing. Now, we know that when we obey the gospel, Acts 22 and verse 16, God washes away our sins. Revelation 1 5 says to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. When we obey the gospel, we're cleansed. But John's saying something different here. John's saying there's a second law of pardon for after I've been baptized. If I continue to walk in the light, the blood of Jesus, the same blood that cleansed me at my baptism, continues to cleanse me. But more than that, John uses a present tense verb to say that this action continues to occur. There's this continual cleansing. As I continue to walk in the light, the blood keeps working. Ephesians 1, 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. But then John says one more thing in verse 7. He says he cleanses us from all our sins. That's Zechariah 13 and verse 1, where the prophet says, in that day, there'll be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and it'll cleanse them from all their sins and all their iniquities. John says, if you walk in the light like he is in the light, you can enjoy, we can enjoy that kind of forgiveness. And here's the thing. It continues to happen as you continue to walk in the light, the blood, the cleanse. What does it mean to walk in the light then? In chapter two and verse 10, John says, if you love your brothers, then that means you're walking in the light. And if you just take the totality of New Testament teaching to walk in the light is to live consistently with New Testament teaching and following the way of Jesus Christ. If you do that, John says you're continually cleansed and continually forgiven. It's interesting. This word for cleanses us from all our sins is a word that's most often used in the New Testament for when Jesus was cleansing people of leprosy. So it's the word in Matthew eight and verse two, when the leper comes to Jesus and he says, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus says, I will be clean. He uses this same word. And if you just think about it in the gospel accounts, when Jesus cleansed people of leprosy, this is easy math. How much of their leprosy did they retain when Jesus cleansed them? None of it. And according to John, first John one and verse seven, if you walk in the light like he is in the light, though you're not sinlessly perfect, how much of your sin do you retain? None of it. John says you sin while you're in the light, but even while you're in the light and you're not perfect and you do fall short, you retain none of your sins because the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses you from all of it. Maybe you've been to somebody's house before. They're a great host. You finish eating and you try to help them clean up. And they say something like, no, you just leave the food there. I've got it. I'm going to clean up. What they're saying to you is it's your job to eat and it's their job to clean up. Now, they're not giving you permission to throw food on the floor or to color the walls in mac and cheese. But what they are saying is this. I brought you here for a purpose. I'm going to do my part. You do your part. And Jesus says, you know what? It's your job to walk in the light. And it's my job to cleanse you as you stumble along the way. If you walk in the light, just like he's in the light, you have fellowship one with another and the same blood will cleanse you from all sins. It's Acts 15 and verse nine, where the apostles say he's purified our hearts by faith. Now, what does this mean for us practically on a day to day basis? It means this. If you're a Christian and you're in the light, doesn't matter how long ago you were baptized. If you are in the light with Jesus Christ, you can be and you are just as purified and clean today as the day you rose from the waters of baptism. You're just that pure, just that clean. You retain just that much sin. 
The second thing this means is if you're in the light with Jesus and if you're walking in the light alongside him, it means that God does not hold you. You say, well, I never be sinlessly perfect. And though you won't be, you can have just as much confidence that you stand justified before him because that same blood continues to work in your behalf. In first John chapter one, if you notice verse eight and verse 10, John says you won't be perfect. If you don't acknowledge sin, you sin in the very denial of sinning. And yet, he says, the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all of it. Read an article in GQ magazine where they talked about how young men can stay clean even when they can't take a shower. Now, if you know about GQ, the the magazine is for image conscious young men that are worried about relationships, sports and fashion. They say sometimes you get in these situations where you can't bathe. And if that ever happens, there are some ways that you can pretty much fake it. They've got baby powder on there and baby wipes and the prices attached. They've got it down to a science, even the fruit that you can eat to make your breath fresh. If you can't get around to brushing your teeth, they've got ways for you to fake it. If you really can't be clean, John says, I've got facts for you to make it so you can know you're clean for sure. First Peter 1, 18 and 19, Peter says we haven't been redeemed according to the feudal ways of our forefathers with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. Somebody says, I don't know whether I'm truly saved. Are you walking in the light? Because if you are, the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse. Now, here's number two. God is faithful and fair. First John one and verse nine, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can be saved and we can be sure about our salvation because the God we serve is faithful and he's fair. John says you will sin even after you've obeyed the gospel. This isn't an encouragement to do so, but it is a reality that none of us are perfect. And John says, look at verse nine. If you confess your sins, the word confess here means if you own up to it, if you say the same thing, if you say, God, I've fallen short, I've messed up. If you confess your sins, God will forgive you. Proverbs 28 and verse 13 says, if he that covers his sin will not prosper, but he that confesses and forsakes his sins will find mercy. And John reiterates that here. If you confess your sins, God's faithful and just those two ideas help you and me to be saved and to be sure. God's faithful. What does that mean? God's trustworthy. You can depend on God. And then he says your translation may have he's just or he's righteous. What does that mean? It means God's fair. He does the right thing. You know, when I think about the forgiveness of God, I typically think about his mercy. And I think that was a part of one of the prayers tonight. And for good reason. Places like Psalm 145, 8 and 9 say that God's long suffering and merciful and gracious and longs to forgive because he's merciful. His mercy is over all that he's made. God forgives because he's merciful. But here's the other thing. God forgives because it's fair. Somebody says, now, what does fairness have to do with forgiveness? John says it has everything to do with it. And this is how it works. When you and I violated the will of God, it inflamed his wrath as it should. And Jesus went to the cross on our behalf. And God says, in Christ, I will forgive your sins. And after you've obeyed the gospel, when you fall short and you will, when you own up and confess it, I won't hold it against you. And it would be unfair and it would be unjust for God to lay that law down and then to back away from it and still hold us accountable for our sins. And so Moses says in Numbers 23 and verse 19, God's not a man that he should lie nor the son of man, that he shall repent. Has he said it and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not make it good? That is, can you really depend on God to keep his word? And you can. 
Look at 1 John chapter 2 and just, dis- just ignore the chapter division and notice what John says in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I write these things to you so that you don't sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. God's faithful and just. Christ is the propitiation for our sins. What is propitiation? John uses the same word in 1 John 4 and verse 10. Propitiation is the appeasement. It's the agreed upon thing that causes God to no longer be upset about our sins. It would be like you maybe tomorrow. You couldn't do this today. But if you went to Chick-fil-A tomorrow and you walked in and you slipped and fell and they didn't have a wet floor sign out and you said, I'm going to sue Chick-fil-A because, hey, I got hurt in their establishment. They said, wait a minute, before you go to the lawyers, before you go to the law, what if we settle up for three million dollars? Well, three million dollars cover the damages. And you say, "Okay." when you accept that three million dollars, the three million dollars is the propitiation. It settles the score. It solves your wrath and it restores the relationship. When Jesus dies on the cross, God says, I'm angry. I hate sin. Jesus dies. God says, I accept that as divine settlement. And he never collects on the same debt twice. If he did, he'd be unjust. He said, hey, I accepted the three million dollars and I'm still taking you to court. God says, The sacrifice of Jesus really did cover it. It changes everything. We can be saved and sure because God is faithful, but God also is fair. This doesn't mean that God doesn't take sin seriously. He takes it extremely seriously. Look at the fact that Jesus died and how he died and know how serious God is about sin. Romans 3.26 says Jesus allowed God to do exactly what God wanted to do, and that is He can be just and the justifier of those that have faith in Jesus. The death of Jesus says God's serious about sin. That's his wrath. He can maintain his justice. But the death of Jesus also says I can retain my grace and mercy toward you because I can save guilty sinners. Are you sure of your salvation tonight? Do you have confidence that you're saved? You say, well, I make a lot of mistakes. I commit a lot of sins. Have you confessed? Are you walking in the light and not running in the direction of unrighteousness? If you are. You can be saved and you can be sure. Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a preacher, a Welsh preacher in the 20th century. And he did a lot of preaching, did a lot of writing in John 17. He wrote a sermon on John 17 and verse 23 was one of these verses he expounded on where Jesus says, God, I want them to know how much you love them just like you love me. And this is Lloyd-Jones comment about John 17 and verse 23. He says, In this Christian life, there are many problems and difficulties, but more and more, it seems to me that most of our problems, if not indeed all of them, arise from the simple fact that we fail to realize, understand and appreciate what is the real truth about us as Christian people. And he goes on to say the bottom line is this. We read of these truths in the Bible, but we don't slow down to meditate on them, that these are not abstract, abstract things. There are things that are written about you and about me. You say, I understand it. I really understand that I'm forgiven. No, you don't. No, I don't. If you really understood that the only set of eyes that really matter look on you and on me and says, I don't hold your sins against you. Criticism wouldn't crush you. You wouldn't be so frustrated about petty things or worried about your job or your money or your appearance or how other people see you. God says you're forgiven. You're justified. Lloyd Jones says in the end, the bulk of our problems surrounds this one reality. We have no idea how loved we are as the people of God and our true standing before him. John says he's faithful and just and he forgives you of all unrighteousness. And once we learn that, once we know our lot as the people of God, we can live like people of God. 
Paul could say in Galatians 2 and verse 20, I'm crucified with them. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And now the life I now live by faith in the Son of God, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's number three. We can know we're saved and sure because God gives the final verdict. You know, the first two points will help you if you really accept them and embrace them. If you take what John says to heart, God continually continuously cleanses us and he's faithful and he's fair and he always forgives just like he says that he does. But number three will help you even if your heart tries to reject the first two. First John three and verse 20, John says, beloved, if our heart condemns us, God's greater than our heart and knows all things. And if our heart doesn't condemn us, then we have confidence toward God. Somebody says, you can tell me I'm saved all day long. I just don't feel like it. I've obeyed the gospel. I'm doing the very best that I can to walk in the light. And I still have this nagging fear that I'm never going to be all right when I stand before him. There's still this possibility that I won't be saved. John says, guess what? In the end, even that doesn't matter because God is greater than your heart and God knows all things. Your heart is not in control. Your heart doesn't know everything. God does. Isaiah 46 and verse 10. He knows the end from the beginning. And if God says you're pardoned, guess what? You are, even if you don't feel like you are. In 2017, I was on a mission trip in Nicaragua. It was the last day of the trip. And on these mission trips, people are saying their goodbyes. They're crying, speaking to the locals, having a good time. And there was one girl, a teenager. She sat down. I was trying to help her and talking to her. And she said, you know, Hiram, I'm never going to be like these others. She was talking about the other teens, pointed them out. She says, I'm never going to be like them. As much as I try, I'm never going to have this sort of contagious joy and excitement and this this just exhilaration about my salvation. I'm just not like the others. I'm never going to feel secure. She'd had some terrible things happen to her, done some terrible things. And she said, I'm just never going to have that kind of confidence. She made two mistakes. The first one is they were not her spiritual competition. But the second one is this. She does not get to pronounce the final verdict on her spiritual standing before God. And guess what? Neither do you. Doesn't matter what we think in the end. There are lost people that feel like they're saved and there are saved people that feel like they're lost. Feelings are essential, but they're not sovereign. Paul says in First Thessalonians five and verse nine, God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is your verse. First John three and verse 20. John says, if your heart condemns you, if your heart says, you know what you've done, I know what you've done. Did he really forgive me? Did he really give me another chance? God's greater than your heart and knows everything. Feelings can misguide us. But John says God never does. Jacob was just sure that his boy Joseph was dead, wasn't he? I mean, just he was sure of it. He said, I'll go to my grave mourning the death of my son. Genesis 37, 24 and 25. Go to the old man and try to explain to him. Listen, Jacob, not only is your son Joseph not dead, he's more alive than he's ever been. Furthermore, he's reigning in Egypt. And one day he'll save you and the rest of your posterity. Jacob, Joseph is not dead. He's alive. He would later find that out. But in the moment, he felt like his son was dead. The evidence before him said he was and it didn't change reality. And you can sit here tonight and say, you know, I don't feel saved. I don't think I am. Deep down inside, I feel beat down. All of the verses you can quote to me about cleansing and forgiveness don't do any work on my heart. None of that changes the fact that even now you reign with Christ in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2 and verse 6. God cast the final verdict, not us. This matters because if we don't know that we're saved, we'll struggle to invite others to do the same. If we don't know we stand on righteous and and saved ground before God, we won't pray like we have the ears of the only one who really matters and who controls everything. And so John says, beloved, if your heart condemns you, God's greater than your heart and knows everything. We are not saved based on what we think about ourselves. We're saved based on what God knows about us. And John says he knows everything. 
The heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But God knows the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. And God's the one that pronounces condemnation or justification. How saved do you think the woman felt in John chapter eight and verse 11 when Jesus told her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Didn't really matter how she felt. She was forgiven. He knew it, even if she didn't. And guess what? The same thing's true about us as Christians. When God says you're forgiven, you're forgiven. Even if your feelings try to play tricks on what your heart really does know. Feelings are slow. Sometimes it takes them a while to catch up, but they don't change reality. And John assures us of that. Here's number four. Our lives mirror the life of Jesus. First John 4, 17 and 18. John says here in his love perfected as he is. So are we in this world. He says perfect love cast out fear. Fear has to do with torment. You and I can be saved and we can be sure about it because our lives mirror the life of Jesus. We sometimes spend a lot of time talking about how Jesus is so different from us. He was God. We're not. He was sinlessly perfect. We're not. He was able to do miracles. We can't. But here John says, hey, we probably should spend some time realizing that we can be saved and sure of it if our lives mirror the life of Jesus. We should have no confidence, no assurance whatsoever if we're living a double life. If we know that we're being an imposter and we're not doing the things that we should, one day our lives, the spiritual frauds, will be exposed before the God that knows everything. John 2, 24 and 25, he knows all men. He knows what's in man. He's going to expose us. But if we're walking in the light, John says, you can have boldness before the day of judgment. We sometimes speak about judgment as if it's just something to fear. But John says, if you're in Christ, you can be bold. You can be expecting. You can be waiting like a student prepared to take a test. You're not fearful, but you're re- you're ready. You're prepared. Paul says, because we have hope, we have great boldness and use plainness of speech. Second Corinthians three and verse 12. Hebrews four and verse 16 says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. And throughout the book of John, John says in chapter three and verse 21 and in chapter five and verse 14, we can have this confidence before God. If our life mirrors the life of Jesus, we can know we stand on level ground before him. We don't have to fear the day of judgment because on the day of judgment, we're going to hear what our heart already knows. You're my son. You're my daughter and whom I'm well pleased. Welcome home. And here's the fifth and final one. We can be saved and we can be sure because eternal life is ours. This is in the set of verses that Caden read for us right before our lesson tonight. First John five and verse 13. John says these things we write to you who believe on the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And the King James and New King James add one more line and that you may keep believing on the name of the son of God. We can be saved and sure because Christ continues to cleanse us. Because we confess our sins, God gives the final verdict and our life is just like the life of Jesus and that he did good. And we're trying to do that. He was the son of God and we're children of God. But here's the fifth one. We can know for a fact that we're saved because eternal life is ours. John doesn't really say what we imagine him sometimes to be saying here. John didn't say we can know we're going to heaven, though that's included. John doesn't say that. John says, if you just look at your Bible, look at the text. John says we can know that we have eternal life. John says we already possess it. John didn't talk about the end time of eternal life, though that is included. John says you can know you have eternal life right now. How can you be saved and sure? Because you already possess it. In chapter five and verse 20, he says Jesus is eternal life. In the New Testament, eternal life means two things, and both of them are important. 
The first thing is eternal life means you and I will live forever and ever and ever when this life is over and we will never die. John 11, 25 and 26. When the New Testament mentions eternal life, sometimes it's talking about the duration of our lives when this life is over. But the second thing eternal life means is we have a rich quality of life right now that we enjoy and we don't have to wait till we get to heaven to enjoy it. And so Jesus could say in John 10 and verse 10, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it in abundance. How can you know you're saved for sure because you already have eternal life? If you already have eternal life, it'd be foolish to assume that when your life is over, your life's going to get worse. It's going to get better, far better, Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 into chapter 5 and verse 1. We can know that we have eternal life. We can be assured of it. We have it right now and it'll be fully realized then. And so our lives should be shaped by that reality. Eternal life is something we're waiting to fully embrace. But right now, if you're a Christian, if you're in Jesus Christ, you already have it. Notice the book of First John really quickly as we come to a close. How many times John mentions this so that we don't forget it? Chapter two. Notice verse twenty five. First John two twenty five. He says this is the promise that he's made to us. Eternal life. In chapter three in verse 14, John says you've passed from death into life. In chapter five and verse 11, he says God's given us eternal life. And in chapter five and verse 12, those that are in the sun, those that have the sun, they have eternal life. Rather than be afraid and rather than expecting to come before the throne of God and be shocked about our final standing, John says we don't have to do that. We can know we're saved right now. I imagine Christians in the first century received the book of first John and their hearts burst forth with excitement. Because they had been troubled by false teachers that were saying they weren't really as saved as they were taught that they were. And John says, you really have nothing to worry about. If you're in Christ, you're in. You're all the way in and you're in forever. Stick with him. Don't quit him. And he won't quit you. The doctrine of once saved, always saved is false and needs to be strongly rejected in view of all of the warnings of the New Testament. But listen, the doctrine of once saved and always unsure is equally false, especially in light of the things that John teaches in First John. We can know that we have eternal life even tonight. We can be saved and sure. And all of the things that we prayed about, all of the things the New Testament encourages us to do, we can do it with full confidence and full joy because we know where we stand with God and we encourage others to come into that same standing as well. Tonight, maybe somebody needs to enjoy the eternal life that the New Testament offers, believing that Jesus is the son, enjoying the first cleansing that happens as we turn away from sin and have our bodies washed in pure water. We rise to walk in newness of life. And though we won't be perfect, he set up a second law of pardon that will justify us before him. If you need to do that tonight, we welcome you to do that. We'd be happy to assist you in that, happy to study the New Testament with you. If we can pray with you or pray for you, come now as together we stand and as we sing.